Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Ryan Tripp coming to you from the New Books Network, Native American Studies and History. Today, uh, we're going to be interviewing Douglas Hunter. Um, The podcast will center on his uh, recent publication, The Place of Stone, Dighton Rock, and the Erasure of America's Indigenous Past, brought to you by UNC, Chapel Hill Press. Now, Mr. Hunter recently garnered his PhD at York University. Uh, His dissertation, which The Place of Stone is based on, um, won the uh, Canadian Dissertation Prize. He's a journalist as well as an uh, an author. He's actually authored an array of books, including Half Moon and uh, God's Mercies. He's currently writing a book, I believe, which he can discuss uh, later on, on uh, The Viking Hoax. Uh, Mr. Hunter, welcome. Uh, thanks. So, is uh, is there any anything else you'd like to add to your book? I like the cover. Uh, the it's I believe it's based on the uh, 1853 daguerreotype by uh, by um, Horatio. Uh, Horatio King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great cover. I mean, I've I think I've done 20 books, so you never know what you're going to get from a cover and. Uh, <laughs> it's always delightful when you get something you like, and I uh, I like that one from the moment they. Sh- and, and I have a background in graphic design. I mean, I've designed a couple books, and I still do illustration work. So I tend, for the sake of the process, to step out of it and not to backseat drive it. But uh, you know, it's it's great when you see people do good stuff, and you go, yeah, it's that works for me. You know, I got nothing to say. So who's that gentleman on the co- on the cover on in the the, the uh, Horatio Gates daguerreotype? Uh, yeah, that's, There's somebody sitting. Yeah, that's uh, that's the fellow that um, I, I have a terrible time blocking on names. Um, that was the illustrator that was used by Henry Rose School Henry Rose Schoolcraft when he investigated the Dighton Rock in the mid 19th century, and it was yeah, it was actually well, uh, uh, there was an earlier daguerreotype, but we don't know where it is. But it's the first, um, yeah, Seth Eastman, Captain Seth Eastman, and uh, it, it was part of the process for a long struggle that uh, Henry Rose Schoolcroft, who we know as a kind of a protean 
uh, ethnographer, ethnologist, anthropologist, you know, linguist type guy uh, wrestling with who made the markings on this rock, which people have been wrestling for by that point for several centuries. So they were part and parcel of that process. Yeah, it's a great cover. I really like the cover. So uh, you contend uh, first that petroglyphs by, and I'm quoting here, a broad cultural class of pre-contact peoples uh, called Eastern Woodlands are all of a kind. Um, But then you argue that uh, Dighton Rock was the largest, uh, the most complex, and the first set of such markings to be found and described. Can you elaborate on your impetus for focusing on uh, Dighton Rock in the context of an Eastern Woodlands category? One of the reasons I'm asking this is because I know there's a lot of uh, such petroglyphs and boulders and rocks across uh, the Eastern Woodland uh, landscape. Um, So, you know, I was just, and I'm sure our listeners are just curious. Yeah, absolutely. Well, when I came into the, this area of study, when I was coming in to do doctoral work, what I was really interested in most was was pseudo-history, fantastic archaeology, all this really kind of fringe stuff about, you know, deep contact past and the idea of pre-Columbian arrivals and whatnot. And when I started narrowing it, when I started looking at all the case studies I had, I started to see a lot of stuff that was really around indigenous artifacts and appropriation or misappropriation taking indigenous materials into saying no these are really you know these are really europeans made this or um you know, or or Native Americans were you know looked in such particular way or had particular capabilities because Europeans came and made them better. Uh, it's something that I ended up you know describing as white tribism. So in the process of what I found is that if you looked at these petroglyph pictograph petroglyph cases. Um, it's quite common to find misinterpretations of them in a European manner. Um, one of the best examples, in fact, I had was Peterborough Petroglyphs here in south-central Ontario. It's a site I know very well. There's like 300 uh, glyphs in this amazing field. Um, and, you know, I also know the painted rocks at Mazinaw Lake and some other places. But and Peterborough is an excellent case study of misinterpretation because it's, it's supposedly a 14th century Viking site. It's some kind of 3000 BC sky map. I mean, there's just an endless number of interpretations that, that have been affixed to Peterborough. But where, what Dighton Rock is valuable for is it's been known for so long. As I said, it was the first rock that was noticed by people, and it was noticed in 1680. So when 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 settlers are coming and seeing this thing, they really, they've only been in, in New England for a couple decades. This is very, very early in, in the, in the, in the Euro-American experience of, of Native American culture. So what, Stephen Williams, in writing about Dighton Rock and Fantastic Archaeology, had said that you know, it's and I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's actually a pretty good litmus test for, you know, what. However, Dighton Rock was being interpreted is a pretty good indication of what archaeological thinking was at the particular time. So Phoenician theories and Viking theories and all these things. They they, if that's what's hot at the time in in this general debate over you know ancient America, Dighton Rock is going to show it to you. And I want to take a step beyond that and say, actually, what Dighton Rock tells you is how 
settler culture was conceiving, conceptualizing of Native Americans. If you see how Dighton Rock is is interpreted at any point in time from 1680 onwards, which is what I couldn't do with Peterborough petroglyphs because it was found in that site was found in 1955, so it's a very very recent history. But Dighton Rock gives you several centuries of working your way through. Um, thinking about Native Americans, origins of Native Americans, um, the rise of of, Amer- of American archaeology and scientific archaeology. It gets you into the whole issue of the mound builders and um, something I ended up calling the multiple migration displacement scenario. And I know you get yourself hated in the academy for inventing terminology, but there were a couple of phenomena that I just, had, I just hadn't encountered before. <laughs> and I said, well, I got to call it something. So those were two things that I ended up doing, white tribism and, and this idea of multiple migration displacement. So that's that's why Dighton Rock appealed to me. It was this, and it was at one point, it's certainly in the 18th, 19th century, it was probably the most famous archaeological relic in, in North America. It was incredibly well known. I mean, today you mention it to people and they go, Dighton what? They just don't know what you're talking about. But then anybody that was writing and thinking about origins of Native Americans and the you know early arrivals in America, they were going to use Dighton Rock. They had to figure out Dighton Rock and fit it into their you know theories in some way. Do you know of any other contemporaneous rocks in the 1680s or 1690s? By the, by the 18th century, people were starting to wake up to the fact that, oh, there's other things that look like this. And certainly by the time the mound builders come along, and, and, they, and, and which is coincident with, with American westward expansion after the American Revolution, you're starting to see not just mounds, which gave to the rise of the erroneous mound builders, but they did start to find – other rocks, it's inscribed stones in the Ohio Valley, you know, on Lake Erie. Um, there was a number of them around New England and, and even nearby in Narragansett Bay where Dighton Rock is. And so they all were kind of, you know, of a kind, I suppose you could say. There were certain motifs in, in style and in imagery that, that seemed to say – these are all kind of made by the same people. And even today, it's very difficult. Um, and that's why something as awkward as Eastern Woodlands gets used, because pre-contact, it's very hard to say exactly which cultures were existing in which places and, you know, tribal identities, you know, morph and change. But there was, um, you know... Sort of the, 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 yeah, there, there, was a, there was a shared... Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. But there was also a shared mythological reality that yeah, was recognizable systems. from yeah from Iroquoian societies and and, and Algonquin speaking groups. So this this is sort of this broad basket of you know of images and beliefs that fall into this what they would call Eastern woodlands. You argue that the Dighton Rock markings are examples of instability in form or perceptual ambiguity. Now I've uh, tank- I've encountered I've encountered that concept before. Um, can you explain this concept for our listeners in the context of Edward Kendall's reference to a reading of the markings first by some Mohawk Indians? What is some Mohawk Indians? What is that referring to? Who's Edward Kendall, and uh, what is perceptual ambiguity? Yeah, which way to come at this first? Um, well, Edward Kendall, we can start with was was a was a very curious and. Curious, in fact, is he was curious about things, and he was curious himself. Uh, an Englishman who came in the early 19th century. He traveled in in east of the Hudson River, 1807, 1809, and I think he came here to look for rocks, these these enigmatic stones. He wanted to see them all, and he wanted to explain them. And he was probably the most rational 
viewer of The Rock at, by this point. I mean, at this point, we've we'd had, you know. Uh, Antoine Cordegeblin, a Frenchman who saw this elaborate Phoenician tableau in three different times, you know, de- you know, depicting the arrival of Phoenicians and their goodwill and amity with the, you know, with the native people they met. Um, you know, there was lost tribes of Israel stuff going around. Um, you know, and probably Phoenician was the was the dominant one, but it but but it was when Kendall came and Kendall looked at it and Kendall's writing, which hasn't been appreciated, has a lot of Masonic subtextual esoteric interpretation in it. But ultimately he really felt that this was, this was an indigenous artifact. Um, the, the, he, he looked at others in the, in, you know, in and around New England and he just, it's all, they're all kind of the same thing. And it was a bit of a denigrating attitude still. It was like no European would come up with something like this. It just, it was too crude for him <laughs> to, you know, Phoenicians wouldn't do this. So therefore it, it looked like the other things Indians did. It's gotta be an Indian thing. So in terms of percept ambiguity, you know, yeah, a number of anthropologists have written about this, and it also ties into something I say in the introduction and I say to people in general, is that Western inquiry has a real problem with ambiguity. Um, it likes certainty of message. It likes absolutes of definitions, identities. And it also pushed people, when looking at something like Dighton Rock, into seeing inscriptions. They wanted to see letters on a rock, and it added up into a message. That's what was there. Um, it had a very difficult time with two things. One is that markings could be made over a long period of time by many different people, um, maybe even people from different culture, cultural groups or tribal groups who are contesting a site. Um, so there was no intention to build up a unified message that you could you could transcribe and read. Um, and there was also the issue of where we know other markings, such in song scrolls or um, shamanic uh, painted rock um, stuff in, in Algonquian culture. We know that where we have... Um, or suspect that where we have exchanges at these rock interfaces, this this earth-sky world, beneath-world interface, where there are exchanges of medicine and power, these markings are very personal. They're not meant to be road signs for everybody else to read. So the markings mean something very distinctive to whoever made them. They, they weren't meant to be read by other people per se. And then you get into the issue of of instability of form in in this in in this ontological world where, um, you know, uh, someone like Nanabiju in, in, in Anishabe uh, realm, who has many other parallels, could, could take any form he wanted. So he's often shown as a rabbit, but he wasn't a rabbit. He could be, he could be what, where, what he wanted. And um, so you, you have, you have a system in ontology where things aren't fixed that do keep changes. The things are hybridized and there's multiple layers of meaning. There's, there's stones that are grandfathers. There are grandfathers that are your literal grandfathers, but they're also other than human beings are grandfathers. So these, these entities from the spirit world, if, if spirit world is the right word, um, you know, fill these multiple and multiple layered roles of meaning. And that makes it very difficult for a Western eye to come in and say, I just want to read what's on the rock. Just tell me what this says. And it also becomes perversely becomes an argument against an indigenous interpretation because people could say, well, <laughs> if you can't tell me what this meant to Indians, 
why are you even telling me it was made by them? Because I'm going to tell you what it reads in Old Norse, because I can read that Old Norse perfectly. So you you know you you negate you know the indigenous attribution because you don't understand the indigenous world, and you you have a great discomfort mm-hmm. with this idea of ambiguity and uncertainty. That's just that's just the way things are, and and that that's hard for people to get their brains to wrap around. So when you mentioned the the Mohawk, there was. There, there was a delegation that, that visited Boston uh, in the 1740s, and it seems it seems very likely that one of the earliest you know explanations for the rock that came from an indigenous voice. And the problem we always have with these explanations, as with Schoolcraft's rendering of, of Shingwalk's interpretation, is we don't hear their interpretation; we hear it filtered through a Western voice and all the misunderstandings that can happen. But what seems to have been happening, I think, is they were describing this enigmatic horn quadruped, which despite all the disagreements about what's on the rock, almost everyone agrees there's a horn quadruped. And that's a classic form in this in this Eastern ontology of these hybridized other than human figures who are sometimes Mr. Pichu. Um, uh, they're sometimes the, the large horned snake. Um, they fall into my grandfather's category. They're, they're, they're figures or creatures to be feared, but also respected. They can, you know, their, their power can assist you. Um, so it's there in the rock. And what's interesting about Kendall is that Kendall sees it and Kendall notices its hybridity. Um, I mean, you can find these examples, too, of these long-tailed uh, creatures in Southeastern Ceremonial Complex, Mississippian tradition. Um, but what's interesting when we're trying to understand how people before us tried to understand this rock is that Kendall was probably on the brink of really understanding a lot of what was going on, but he had this very westernized view. He was also a very good artist, and he painted did a very good painting on the rock. And he had a problem with the fact that this figure, which seemed really important, wasn't right smack in the center of the rock. Because that was his European pictorial perspective. Well, if that's going to be the point of the rock, why isn't it in the middle? You know, why isn't the center why isn't the center of some composition? And he does allude to the fact that he did talk to a number of Native Americans um, who probably told him bits and pieces about what was on the rock, but because he couldn't see a unified portrait of something, he just basically discarded it. So he never wrote it down and we and we lost whatever it was that he was told by people. And that's 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 a really informative, you know, view of of how you approach from a particular cultural perspective and fail to hear what's being told to you because it's not fulfilling what you want to see. And so, so for something like the horned quadruped, where you get this this combination of Michipishu, this this water monster essentially. Uh, this is a rock, so people understand now is or until it was moved was underwater twice a day because there's a diurnal tide that flows up the Taunton River. So this rock was submerged completely twice a day. It would go under the water and then would emerge from the water. And you know, if you're going to stick the horn quadruped on it, it kind of makes sense that this this creature would emerge from the water just as it does twice a day. Um, and so there's a bit of a logic there and why that image might be there on the rock. Um, and I should emphasize too, though, that what I'm talking about this is I don't pretend to have any kind of explanation as to what it means in an indigenous spirit world. Um, what, I, what I've wanted to say is there are elements in the rock that are I mean, it's clearly an indigenous artifact. I don't really know what it means. I don't know if anybody's ever going to know what it really means because of those percept ambiguities, because of what the intention of the inscriber was. Um, but it's 
yeah, and I'm not going to tell indigenous people this is what your rock means. It's really for them to decide what it means. Um, but it's more to at least place it in the context of this is what these cultures and what we understand of these cultures would have done and why they had these significant rocks, these sacrifice rocks and boulders, why these rocks were in particular places at the threshold of water, sky, and, you know, the, and, the, and, and the beneath world, that these, these are motifs you find in these, in these, uh, in these rocks. That's great. Uh, on the subject of uh, percept ambiguity, uh, you mentioned Craig Sapola, who was actually my 2010 uh, Indigenous Archaeology Field Supervisor. His symbolic petrification. Uh, can you explain that in relation to percept ambiguity? Boy, let me give it a shot. Um, that's really for Craig to describe. But he, he was looking at, and I just alluded to it a bit, he's looking at the idea of, of ancestors literally becoming, you know, at one with stone. Um, that, you know, in, in I think what he's talking about is in recognizing and, remember, and remembering your physical ancestors, they become, they, they become part of this world of stone. There's these, world, these stones have, have so-called sacrifices. There's pine branches left on them. And, and he also talks about um, this ambiguity in, the, in this world between what we would consider our ancestors, like your grandfather, and these other ancestors which are which are in a spirit world or this other than human world which would include these you know these water monsters so-called uh and and so there's a bit of a fluidity between what is human and what is other than human and it's also in a world that is essentially animated in almost every aspect it doesn't mean everything is alive but everything in some way can be alive and you find the relationship quite 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 extensively through Eastern and Northeastern North America, this idea of stone being being significant, stones themselves being significant, and stone being kind of a permeable barrier to to those who know how to access it and, and access this other world, this world of other than human spirits, which is also a place where ancestors have gone. On the topic of shifting meanings and affinities. Many of your authors, Kendall, Styles, etc., seem to interpret, reverse, retract, and reinterpret Dite and Rock assessments throughout their lives. How did this instability shape your approach to their Northern European, Phoenician, Tartar migration theories, as well as advancing your own Gothicism and transatlantic Gothicism, those uh, categories that you mentioned earlier? How did this shape your approach to how did this, these reversals and retractions, which I noted throughout the book, how did this uh, shape your approach to the to your own categories? Well, I think people were struggling to define Dighton Rock at the same time they were trying to dis- they were struggling to define other issues. So Dighton Rock was a means to an end, um, and a lot of that was around issues of Native American origins. But it also, really, in a broadest broadest sense. All these theories were trying to answer two questions, as I said. It was who belongs in America and to who does America to whom does America belong? Those are the two really driving questions you find through much of the colonization, colonizing period, and indeed in, in through the history of the Republic. Um, who ought to be here and and by rights and you know who gets to have it? So um Dighton Rock really gets enlisted in, in that idea because it it, it it is being used both to identify these 
people from other places, these Phoenicians and lost tribes type people and Vikings. Um, but it's also being used even when it's in an, in an indigenous context to define who native people are and aren't. So one of the things that I found really remarkable is that it really did seem to have a zeitgeist role and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and an actual role in defining who the mound builders were and this whole thing, as I said, about multiple migration displacement scenario because the formative idea – that drove American archaeology, scientific archaeology in the 19th century was that the largest, you know, pre-contact culture civilization, quote unquote, the mound builders, which really weren't one culture at all. There's at least four different phases of different occupations and different peoples for these things. Yes. But but there's this I, there was this idea that there was some kind of people that came to America first, and they were a more sophisticated people. Now, whether they were lost tribes of Israel or simply somebody more elevated from Asia or Malays or, I mean, you name it, pick a name, pick a name from hat. They came here first, and they established themselves in North America. And then these hordes showed up, these brutish Tartarian, you know, descended from Tartars in northern Siberia and Asia, and they come pouring in across the Bering Strait, and they either massacred or just pushed aside the more sophisticated people. And they became the Inca and, and, and you know, and the Aztecs and whatnot. So Native Americans were not were not the original people and they did not inherit these you know they were they were not the descendants of these so-called superior you know peoples who left these amazing mounds and whatnot behind and Dighton Rock so Dighton Rock drove that partly because the idea as it shifted around and it also went through its own reversing polarities where you know at at one point Dighton Rock is the work of those sophisticated early people that came uh, and then were shoved aside by the Native Americans. You know, in later interpretation, they became the Native Americans themselves who shoved aside the, the more sophisticated people. Whichever way it went, it never worked out well for Native Americans and how and how the rock was interpreted. But the rock had that utility, and people were struggling with their own questions. Westerners were struggling with their own questions about origins of humanity, um, polygenism and monogenism, and this overspreading of the earth um, and, and who got where first. So Dighton Rock being such a well-known archaeological artifact, you just you had to account for it and you had to work with it. So people kind of worked with it and they changed their minds a lot. Now, uh, one of these people actually equates Phoenicians with Native Americans. Um, you alluded to this. Who was this person, and uh, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, did they did did this person equate Phoenicians with Native Americans, and how? Uh, well, there was a couple that did that, and I'm trying I'm I'm sort of grasping my own book right now to get them all. And so on court, yeah, uh, well, like specifically, well, Court Gablin was well. He he saw them as distinct peoples, but there was this amity of you know uh, they come together and and they and they treat each other with respect and peace. Um, and he was a Corda Gamelin was a, was a Masonic esotericist. He wrote, uh, you know, he wrote a whole series of works on, on you know, on esoteric matters. And I think actually, because he was also a staunch critic of Catholicism, that his whole interpretation of Dighton Rock was this elaborate, you know. Um, Basically, a criticism of, of the Spanish in America that you know the Spanish in America were unworthy of the people they met, the the, the indigenous people they met. Um, but the Phoenicians had come and look how well they got along with everybody because there's this record in the rocks. So it was a condemnation of you know of the Catholic incursion into, into the Americas. Um, 
but there's always this tension in the, in these in this you know in, in this broader basket of what I call white tribism is is to um, whether you know evidence that is indigenous is actually it gets misinterpreted as being no this is actually foreigners that came here and left this stuff to us or it becomes proof that no these foreigners came and they actually improved the native americans they taught them the skills that made it possible to leave the marks in the rock or they made them more physically handsome or beautiful because they interbred with them um so you know that's part and parcel of that kind of phoenician theorizing are you gonna let these people mix with each other or are you gonna let one of them you know be you know one of them be the superior group and, and give them the credit for the for the uh, for the archaeological artifacts and, and this sort of misappropriation happens time and again in in, in archaeological interpretation. It's why the rock becomes Viking, you know, in the 1830s, and then you know, I mean, an indigenous grave at, at Fall River uh, becomes, I mean, it becomes a North grave. I mean, it just, you know, Henry Wadsworth Watts fell. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, Longfellow, you know, writes a whole poem called "The Skeleton Armor," you know, that supposedly, and it's it's clearly a 17th century typical, you know, Native American burial, um, but it it gets it gets reworked as well as evidence of these newcomers, and others at the same time think no, it's a Phoenician burial, but it's it's all appropriation in the end. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, Edward Kendall, the Freemason scholar, earlier. Um, he interprets Dighton Rock markings as figures influenced by works of art of a better and higher character. Now, um, you also briefly mentioned uh, Henry Schoolcraft um, and then uh, Shingwak. Uh, and and this, this, these scenes that Shingwak presents and his companions present that are supposedly infused with meaning. Um, you know, what, are, what were the circumstances of Schoolcraft and Shingwak's uh, and his companions meeting um, separate from the Mohawk delegation? Um, the earlier Mohawk delegation, um, and what 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 did Shingwak um, refer to as infused with meaning? What in a in a, <laughs> a redundant sense? What does that mean? Right. Well, Shingwak was a was a leading figure in the Upper Great Lakes in, in Anishinaabe uh, politics and culture, uh, and he was Henry Roll Scrollcroft. For people that don't know him, was was you know starting in the eighteen twenties. And through became one of America's leading, you know, ethnographers. Um, uh, he married into an Anishinaabe family. He really owed a tremendous amount to his wife and her family for what he understood. He, cl- I think, he claimed to really understand more than he really did. Uh, if it wasn't for them, he would have a very hard time knowing much of anything or holding forth on much of anything. But he had been the Indian superintendent for the U.S. at. Um, you know, at Michilimackinac. And so he knew Shingwak from negotiations over, you know, over American expansion. And um, we, we don't have enough hours in the day to go into, you know, all the permutations <laughs> of schoolcraft. But basically in 1839, uh, he, the, the drawings had been these drawings had been published, a series of drawings had been published uh, in Antiquitates Americana, which was the big 1837 text that laid out the the contention that this was a Norse inscription, or at least the middle of the thing was by, you know, it, it, it explained the voyage of Thorfinn Karl Sefni and his attempts to colonize that were in the Vinland sagas. So he was very intrigued by all this, and it had the draw, various drawings done by different people. Um, and and you have to remember, 
Schoolwife himself had never even seen the rock either. And this is very common in the history of Dighton Rock. People who had never been within a thousand miles of the rock were very confident on explaining what it was all about based on drawings by other people. So there was always these multiple layers and removals of interpretation. And that's a very hard rock to draw. That's another problem. You're trying to interpret this three-dimensional object with very obscure markings that have been vandalized as well over the years but anyway he took the drawings to shingwalk and he, he took them he said i want you to read basically he said i want you to read this for me so shingwalk took away the drawings uh, the volume and for reasons we don't really know why he decided one of the particular drawings was the most important and and he, he gave an explanation and it was a multi-partite part historical part mythological um Schoolcraft actually takes about a dozen years to get around to even publishing it, and you have to understand all the other changes in Schoolcraft's life and all his other interests that that happen over the intervening years to realize a lot of the problems with trying to read Schoolcraft's interpretation of what Shingwalk's interpretation of the rock was, which was based on other people's interpretation (laughs) of the rock based on drawings. And I don't think Schoolcraft himself understood Despite his claims to being very versed in, uh, in in the esotericism of the Wabano Society and and other medicine societies, I don't think he really understood this stuff at all. So there are elements of what Shingwak was probably trying to tell him that he didn't get, and and I think Shingwak and I think Schoolcraft also had a habit of putting his own spin on things. He certainly did that when there was a later petroglyph found at Cunningham's Island, and a lot of the reading he attributes to Shingwak. I am very skeptical if any of it came from Shingwalk. I think I think Schoolwork probably just made it up himself <laughs> and, and and attributed it to him because by then mm. Shingwalk they were well removed from each other. He hadn't seen him in forever. Shingwalk was near the end of his life. I mean it's a whole other, you know, issue with his interpretation. So Shingwalk is a real difficulty for us. It's that on one hand, here is an indigenous authority. On the other hand, we don't know how much to trust of what Shingwalk says because it's coming through Schoolcraft. And school, and we also have to question, well, why does Shingwalk want to even tell him? What was in it for Shingwalk? Shingwalk was someone who was in the midst of some very difficult political negotiations. He had been with the Americans. He was with the British you know, in later years. Uh, Schoolcraft was someone who was – you know trying to make happy. Schoolcraft had very particular ideas about what he wanted to see in these rocks. He was always around these ideas of warfare and tension and violent overthrows. So, you know, that's what, if that's what Schoolcraft kind of wants to hear, well, he's going to hear war stories. And I also think when we're looking at things that Shing, when you read Shingwalk's Things that other things that Shingwalk is interpreting, he does tend to interpret them in very in very particularly similar ways. There is a leader, a war leader like himself, who's military and also spiritual. Um, and there's these elements of what's on the rock that are partly historical, partly you know uh, mythological, and these are kind of of a kind of the things that Shingwalk would say. So cultural artifacts tend to be you know. Can be requickened, as as you could put it. You look you look at them, and you may not know exactly for certain what the original you know drawer. Whenever it was done, we really don't know when when Dighton Rock was done. But for someone like Shingwak, he can infuse it with new meaning by saying, "Oh, I can you know from what my worldview is and what my understanding is this. I think this is what was going on. Whether that was really what was going on and the ideas of the person who originally did them." Um, 
is you know is another question altogether. So that that is a question with Shingwalk. One of the things I refer to a lot when people ask me about this kind of thing is I, there's an there's an there's an essay by uh, an Anishinaabe anthropologist named John Norder who's worked up in the Great Lakes Northwest Great Lakes you know in the area the Boundary Waters area which is where we know a lot of song scroll stuff and painted rock imageries and John Norder has a really really useful idea or conceptualization to keep in mind when we look at these things in a contemporary way. And he divides this kind of rock imagery into two categories. One is um, maker meaning, maker slash meaning, and the other is caretaker slash utility. So on the maker meaning side, that is literally whoever made it and what did they mean by what they put on the rock. And in, in, in a large part today, the communities and, the, and even, you know, and, and anthropologists try to have a shot at but we really don't know with absolute certainly exactly what these markings were made for. We don't know why they were made. We don't know specifically what they mean. We certainly don't really know who the name of the person was was them who made them. But the caretaker but for a contemporary indigenous community, it's the caretaker utility that's the most important thing. That we may not know exactly what these these markings mean why they were made or who made them, but we know they were made by ancestors and the caretaker utility is the most important part of them. We preserve them, we protect them, and it's that relationship with these images that is also a relationship with land, with territory, with ancestry. That's how these you know that's how these sites are important to us today we're not going in and reading them in a literal way and saying this happened on this day and this is what this you know this is talking about some war that happened or this was so and so making this exchange it's that we just res- we respect these as part of us as part of the past and as the part of the place we live so i i think it's that really important when when you talk to people this kind of work is to be and again it comes back to this comfort with ambiguity with the unknowable it's like i, I can't tell you exactly what these things mean and we shouldn't feel an inadequacy because we can't say exactly what they are there's diff- there's a different level of utility in 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 the care in the caretaking of them horatio king the 1853 daguerreotype that's actually on your cover. Uh, that resulted in Schoolcroft's uh, retraction of an Icelandic inscription interpretation of Dighton Rock, did it not? I thought that was. Yes, it did. I, yeah, uh, Schoolcraft. I don't know. Actually, I don't know how many times Schoolcraft changed his mind about the rock. It's it's he he goes through a lot of you know different you know versions of it. Um, the mo- the most confounding one really is when he first published on it, and he said. For reasons that I, I really try hard to understand and explain, he decided there was something that you know the, the the prevailing theory at the time was that there was this inscription, you know, by Thorfinn Karlsefni. And and frankly, though, even Americans who and scholars who liked the ideas in Antiquitates Americana about how Vinland was in southern New England and how there were you know the the the, the, the Vinland sagas were real events with real people in them. Um, a lot of the commentators had a real problem with the interpretation of Dighton Rock. They just they just felt that, and I, I agree, is that the authors really overreached. They were so desperate to have physical evidence of you know, of Vikings in the New World, the Dighton Rock filled the role for them, but they just went and in fact, the drawing that was published, which still gets republished unknowingly, was borderline fraudulent in how it presented what was on the rock surface. So so Schoolcraft is working in that milieu of 
a lot of people think it's Viking, a lot of don't. So is this thing Icelandic or isn't it? And he and the and so when he goes and sees it, he comes he comes away with this this baffling idea that 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 everything sort of around the rock is is Native American. But there is this section right in the middle that is probably, you know, it's Icelandic in some way. And um, and when he finally goes and see when, – when, uh, when the King Digger type is done, um, you know, and Seth Eastman goes and looks at it, he looks at that photo and says – no, I can't see the Icelandic stuff anymore. It's it's not there, um, and he knew that there was a problem with the Icelandic stuff from from day one. Um, the other problem with the photo, though, is that all the stuff was chalked ahead of time, and that's a problematic issue for interpreting as well. Uh, I mean, and that's something that that Kendall recognized quite, you know, you know, quite intelligently. It said the moment you start to you start to mark this rock up, you know, whether it's with paint or chalk, you're, you're just going to start making basically bad decisions. Um, it's almost like a Ouija board of just following around what you, you know, whatever you want to see, you're going to end up seeing, you're going to try to follow these tracings. And, and so when he produced a painting, he actually describes it. Unfortunately, the painting's been lost. It went to the Peabody and nobody there knows where it is anymore, but we do have engravings of it. And one of the things that Kendall advised people when he made it and he wrote about it is that, if you have trouble reading what these particular inscriptions are in my painting, that's because I painted them that way. Because that's how you're going to find it in real life. It's going to be very hard for you to see what's exactly there because it's very hard to see what's there, you know, when you see it for yourself. And there's a, a good litmus test of the, that is the fact that we have two different engravings of the rock, one made in the early 19th century, one made in the early 20th century, both based on Kendall's painting. And those two engravings of the painting can't agree in what's on the painting and the painting is supposed to be of what's on the rock so we keep getting these layers of removal uh stepping back from what the original was and kendall as well i think was prescient in recognizing that whereas others who approached it always approached it like an inscription like it was something you know you know, in the biblical lands, you know, on a, on a, on a stone and you just had to write down whatever the markings were. And then you could take that piece of paper and, 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 you know, translate it somehow like the Rosetta stone or, or other things. And what he realizes is that the rock and the markings are one and the same thing. The rock itself is sacred. And I think that's really, really important for people to understand outside of the book. I've said, you know, I'm, I'm not that I'm advising it, but I think you could take an angle grinder to the stone and take all of the markings off and the stone would still be sacred. That, that, that's the point. The point of it is that this object in three dimensions is a sacred space. Um, the markings are part of a human interaction with it. Um, but Kendall realized that. Kendall realized this is a, a physical three-dimensional fact, not just an inscription on a tablet or something. On the topic of uh, white tribism and different like Norse interpretations, I really found it fascinating that uh, Carl Raffin, um, assisted by recreational antiquarians such as John uh, Russell Bartlett, actually skewed European, yeah, skewed European trade um, in favor of white tribism and uh, Norse settlement as explanations for, for example, the brass breastplate breastplate found in that uh, Fall River indigenous burial that you mentioned. I thought that was fascinating. So I really enjoyed your uh, conclusion at the uh, State Park Museum in uh, Berkeley, Massachusetts. You ultimately conclude that George Young's 1970 four-phase organization of the Dighton Rock exhibit 
raised 11 feet from the Tidewater River, separated the rock from the waters quoting you that revealed and concealed its markings. If its top ever received offerings that bound through stone the living and recently departed to grandmothers and grandfathers, to spirits human and other than human, no one could place them anymore. The horned quadruped was still plainly visible. Can you elucidate this final sentence of the book? I, I mean, I think I wanted to leave people with this idea that you confront this object and whatever else everybody has been telling you for 380 years, you're staring at this glyph of a horned quadruped. And I have to say that when I saw the rock in the museum in 2013, I mean, it, I mean, I'm not. I'm not indigenous. I'm not an indigenous spiritualist. Um, I, I, I have an. I think I have a basic empathy with, you know, what this ontology is about, and I get it, and why it's important to people. It was important and is important. But and so for me, sitting outside that culture, but having some understanding of the culture, when I finally saw the rock, I, I, I felt it was like seeing Shamu the killer whale <laughs> in a concrete tank with no lighting and a, and a, you know, just in this you know, this octagonal box and completely removed from the, from the, from the environment in which it was intended and had lived for who knows how many, how many hundreds or thousands of years. We just really don't know. And it's, you know, it it was, you know, it was physically, you know, ripped out of its environment and the river in a, in that riverside location where it was washed by tide twice a day, where it faced the West and had, you know, the sun rose on it and the set on it. There was, you know, it was in a physical world and I, and now it's, you know, housed in this museum that seems to think it's a Portuguese relic from 1511. And it's, it's, it really captures the whole idea of, of an indigenous cultural object being captive, you know, being held captive um, that in, you know, in historical interpretation, possession is nine tenths of the law, you know, and, and so physicality of possession comes up in this story over and over again, you know, once, you know, you know, assonant neck on which it exists was, you know, taken from the Wampanoag after King Philip's war in six, you know, and in 1676. So it became, the whole property became a possession of settlers. Um, the ownership of the rock has been, you know, fought over over the years. It was at one point deeded to the, you know, to the to the Danish Royal Society of Antiquaries. Um, the, you know, the burghers of Boston in the 1870s wanted to physically move it to Boston, put it in the art gallery there as a shrine to Leif Erikson. Um, who controls and owns the rock in a legal sense really has controlled how it is interpreted, and that's very true of me- museology in general. But I don't think there's been it's really hard to think of another example of something that is really pretty indisputably indigenous um being held captive the way it is in in a museum that is dedicated overwhelmingly to this idea that there's a lost Corte real expedition you know left this cryptic message on the side of it um it's 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 quite shocking frankly to see and, and i say that in the context of something like peterborough petroglyphs where it's now a, a provincial park uh, co-managed by Curve Lake First Nation, and there's this enormous building 
glass covered building on top of the rock because it's quite a large rock face area that where these petroglyphs are and you know it's all climate control because it's supposed to prevent it from being eroded over time and whatnot and there has been pushback um i know i know at least one indigenous scholar that's written about it is that this is not a natural place for the rock to be that this was supposed to be you know in the environment you know out in the open air this is in some building now um this is not how you treat a you know you, you treat a you know an object like this. And I know in uh, there's there's at least one petroglyph I think Blackfoot territory in in Western Canada where they've just finished a digital mapping of the surface. In fact, they just did a digital mapping of Dighton Rock uh, state archaeology people, and they clearly think it's indigenous. But anyway, in the, in the Blackfoot example, um, they did the digital mapping to preserve what's there. Um, the Blackfoot advice is that this needs to exist in the, where it is. And if it erodes over time, it erodes over time. That's just what's going to happen to it. Um, there isn't this intervention and inter- interference with with its place and time in the world. So, yeah, when you see that thing in a museum, it, it really it really hit home to me, you know, where we've ended up after 300-odd years. We have, you know, an indigenous object of indeterminate age, you know, now being used as a shrine to Portuguese exploration daring. And it's it's shut in a museum where, you know, it's in this, you know, little enclosed room with some lights, spotlights from below, you know, and you're supposed to figure out, I, I guess, you know, the Portuguese markings or something. I don't know. So in our last minute here, uh, what can we expect from you next? I mentioned at the intro that you're working on a Viking hoax book. Yeah, I seem to be making a career out of problems of things, things in museums that have problems surrounding them. I've done other work like this as well, and I don't think it's ever been a plan, but I'm working on a book. I'm just finishing it, actually, from McGill Queens University Press on the Beardmore Viking Relic Hoax, which was supposedly a Viking grave, circle 1000, that was found by a prospect north of Lake Superior and the artifacts, a sword, an axe head, and what was supposed to be a shield handle uh, were purchased by the Royal Ontario Museum, which has had and has one of the great archaeological collections of the world. It was bought in 1936, and it took 20 years for the hoax to fall apart. So this story is very interesting to me. Not so, It's really, really not so much about Vikings at all. It's really about how power is exercised through through institutions, through and across professional networks, um, because it, it persists for 20 years because the museum and the professionals associated with it just fought at times ruthlessly any attempt to say, no, this is actually a hoax. This is this is a really bad provenance. This really doesn't make much sense at all. Um, and that's what's instructive today still, I think, even though this happened decades ago, you know, there's still issues within scholarship in the academy where we have to worry about how power is used and how power can, you know, dominate conversations um, about, you know, attribution and authenticity and how insiders and outsiders, you know, you know, work, you know, with within those milieus. So that's, that's kind of what that project's all about. All right, Mr. uh, Mr. uh, Dr. Hunter, it was great having you on the show. Today and uh, we hope that uh, for the new books network at least that you'll uh, that we'll be talking to you again uh, in the uh, coming uh, uh, months and years. All right, this is Ryan Tripp uh, signing off for uh, the New Books Network, Native American Studies and History. Uh, I hope you'll uh, listen to us next time.